0: Welcome to Digitel, a Leadership Log mini-series where we chat about navigating the digital healthcare world. We'd like to thank CHIME, the College of Healthcare Information Management Executives for sponsoring this mini-series. Today we're going to be talking a bit huskily about what digital first means for the NHS, how it relates to the recent What Good Looks Like framework, and what it means in particular for community services. Liam Cahill is the founder of Together Digital and their company website tells us that they help organisations with the future, which is a pretty big task. He works with public sector organisations to facilitate digital organisational change. He's a health tech advisor and mentor. He runs digital accelerator programs where he encourages disruptive thinking, looking differently at your organization and bringing the human element to all of this digital thinking. You might have heard him on the Leadership Log podcast talking about disruptive leadership. If you haven't listened to that yet, then you definitely should go and find it. Liam, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast.
1: Uh, very good to be here. I'll point out that I can, I can be husky today if you want, but my, my <laughs> voice is functioning absolutely fine. <laughs>
0: That mine's working enough hopefully if people can hear me we'll be fine <laughs> brilliant no thank you so much liam it's really lovely to have you with us and i loved listening to your podcast with becky on the leadership blog so i'm hoping that this one will be just as informative i'm sure it will so let's start off by talking about digital first which it's really come to the fore over the last few years particularly in the national picture what's your take on how we should be responding to that
1: well, it's a big, it's a big question with a big answer, I suppose, isn't it, Antonia? Um, so, firstly, I think we need to acknowledge that we have a lot of digital terminology that's coming through, and that a lot of people are having to try and grapple with: digital first, digital transformation, digital therapeutics, health tech, med tech, all of these different kind of terms. And for entirely honest, digital as a as a term is something that can end up being quite obscure and confusing and exclusive to the average person. By person, I mean, somebody who is a member of staff who isn't whose job isn't dedicated to these, these particular areas. And I think also there's a lot of debate around safety and appropriateness in this area. So I guess somewhere up in NHS England, there is kind of an office that comes up with confusing buzzwords. And I think on this particular topic, national probably aren't necessarily doing a very good job in defining what this, what this topic means. So I suppose what i quite like to do is to um, use some of the discussion that I've been using on my course, um, to, to try and think a bit differently about what we mean around digital first. Um, and I suppose there's two key areas that I think is the real phenomena that we are grappling with at the moment. And these are breaking down space and time. So firstly, in terms of breaking down space. I think you know, and this is. I, I, and before any, any of your listeners sort of switch off and start thinking, "Oh God, is someone else talking about virtual consultations?" Bear with me, right? Because obviously, in terms of digital first, we in terms of breaking down space, we absolutely have all experienced the fact that we can int- instantly transport to be anywhere, no matter where we are. You're in the southeast, I'm in the southwest right now, and we're able to communicate and do something that's productive. But the really exciting thing for me is what happens when we're doing this. Because effectively, what is happening is that our interaction is being broken down into ones and zeros, right? Like in the matrix, you know, like that. And what this means is that our interaction is becoming data. And we talk about data, data, data all the time, but we have so much opportunity on what we can do with this data that could really start to transform care. So I'll give some ex- really exciting examples that could really actually start to improve the staff and patient experience. So um, one example at the moment is that Google has recently brought out instantaneous transcription and translation of text. So imagine if you're talking to um, a-, a Bangladeshi woman whose English is second language, her second language and she's really struggling in order to um, understand what you're providing. Now, normally you'd have to make, you would have to call to get somebody around who can that you'd really have to work hard to do that. Now, providing obviously her literacy is absolutely, her literacy is fine, then actually, it could be that right in front of you, you could start something up and actually one to one, use that to create a digital first interaction, or it could be that you could use a video consultation. And this is because these ones and zeros are going through a supercomputer that is then saying, okay, like we are, we are now um, turning this information into a different language. Other examples could be, for example, um, like there are, there's a new um, sort of concept like virtual agents that's coming through, which basically means that they create some weird like dead eyed synthetic human, but that synthetic human could effectively start doing Makaton, we're not very far away from being able to take that language and to turn it into sign language. So what about, for example, if we were using that to help illustrate to people or create videos or stuff like that to be able to do that this like um, when I did my um, accelerator session, I actually delivered it as a cartoon pirate and I ran it through the pass through on this. But actually, if we take this even further and start thinking about artificial intelligence, which basically is the game for all of this, um, one um, piece of technology that's being assessed is um, sentiment analysis. So what that basically means is on the top left of the screen, what you might potentially be seeing is um, numerical data around someone is Expressing signs of being sad or angry or scared. Now imagine if, for example, we had this augmented information in our real-time interaction that allowed us to be able to think, okay, this is this, this person is showing signs of being scared. And to borrow a real-world example from, um, from that the NHS is using, they're running AI pass-through technology on the phone calls they're having. And um, they are using it to pick up signs about um suicide risk um, in, when um, in emergency care. So that's kind of one example where we're talking about space. The other thing, which I think is the really exciting thing, right? And if if like AI virtual dead-eyed agents, you know, and like pirates aren't exciting, then actually let's just look at breaking down time. (laughs) Because (laughs) so... um, one of the, I suppose one of the like I worked with a number of teams during the pandemic who were then starting to think about how they could deliver services in different places. And one of the great things is that once we start realizing that we can do something virtually, it starts us to think like we're doing right here. Well, actually, how can we not necessarily have to do everything? sort of, you know, ephemerally or in-person using our time. So Antonia's time and Liam's time to be able to get a message. So let's say we were having the world's greatest conversation and person- Which three we are. is next to us. Oh uh, Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> so I, I couldn't say that out, i uh, hypothesizing, okay? But let's say that we've got, um, you know, person number three who's here and they're getting lots of information around a particular topic. That's great, but the second that we stop it, all of that moment is lost. And in care, actually, healthcare, social care is about moments. It's about communication and connection and information and all of these different things. So, what about if you've got this individual? She is a, a nurse, um, she is like MVP, best nurse in class. She's there in your organization. And whenever she goes to a patient, you know, she gets the most complex, tricky patients and she just manages to just really help that patient to be able to understand their experience informally you might be like oh if only we could bottle this nurse if only we could use her you know if only we could just make her work all the time or clone her to a certain degree we can if we start thinking about how we break down time so you know Because, you know, we say people about our best asset, but our best assets can leave us. And obviously, in the workforce, we're getting this a lot. Our best assets only work so many times. Our best assets get sick. Our best assets retire. Our best assets go on holiday. And so from a care perspective, our best assets, there's a number of different risks. But what about if in care, all of these areas where we have what I call repeatables, right? Those moments where she sits down and really explains something well in a way that only she can do. What about if we could record this what about if um that that nurse is a health visitor and at three o'clock in the morning a mother who is really struggling uh with latching and is in significant amount of pain like my partner was when we had our, our our child she doesn't have to wait until tuesday when somebody can come through what about if there is something in a coordinated care service that can take that bottled version of this individual and send it through to her. It might be for interventions, someone who's trying to get to grips with um, exercise or a new diet, we can send things through potentially on a scheduled way. There is so much opportunity if we start thinking about repeatables. And I suppose if I'm to like go back to the nub, and this is a long answer, but we, as we agreed, you've got a croaky voice today, so. Uh, <laughs> Thank you um, very much. <laughs> if, <laughs> if I said to you, Antonia, as a, as a DN, um, I'm gonna give you the power to change space and time. You'd think, oh cool, I'm Dr. Strange and I've got superpowers. But actually this is exactly what we're talking about when we talk about digital and potentially digital first. Because if we can use these powers to reimagine care, then suddenly we start having solutions to workforce pressures, suddenly we start having solutions to the availability of our service and the time around it. Suddenly we have the ability to support people who are on waiting lists in community services, which of course is the the secret crisis that people are talking about less than acute. Um, We can give our nurses or doctors or health visitors or carers superpowers. And if we can find a way to take this one concept that nobody understands and really start to go into what this means, I think there is something where there is a wealth of ideas from frontline staff who can really start to take this and apply it and apply those superpowers, which are available if we start to think about it. So we need to kind of hopefully get beyond talking about consultations and start talking about the jetpack or the special space and time superpower machine that you've got, because we've got that right now.
0: I love you're using the term superpowers and um, I hear that used quite a lot around nurses or other clinical teams, like that you kind of have got some superpowers already with your clinical like abilities but to be able to kind of extend that even further and to as you say to be able to control space and time with your with your new digital tools so that you can expand your like your um, ability to provide Mm. um, all of those different things you provide even better it's just such an exciting um, place to be if you can think about it differently although at the moment Mm. unfortunately we a lot of clinical teams see it as like a a real frustration or something that's making their jobs harder so that's why yeah. we need to think about about how we use them differently to make it into a yeah. real positive and a benefit for our staff and for our patients.
1: And that's us failing them, that's us failing them by not helping them understand what this can do and be for them and this is a, this is a, a national local and provider level problem where everybody's talking in exclusive terms and we need to get past that and we need to realise that we're failing in our responsibility to help these individuals see because I've seen when that light bulb moment happens and they're like oh my god i can i can do things i couldn't do i can change my service model i can help this patient more that's that's great you know when and it's not this this system that they some people have created i can do this i can make that change and if we've got the whole workforce realizing they can make that change then suddenly some of the major issues we're dealing with start to become something that we might be able to contend with right
0: Absolutely. So I think you and I both work um, or think a lot about community services. As you said, I'm a district nurse by background and I know you are really interested in that space. So I Mm. think some of the things you've just mentioned there about how we break down space and get people instantly transported across, the, you know, without having to be in in a different place all the time, that will really appeal to community teams who are having to Mm. travel every day to see their patients. So how big do you think the opportunities are in the community with this, um, all these exciting things you're telling us about?
1: Um, I think they're huge so I've had the privilege over the last four years of working very closely with a number of providers and their individual services and actually let's forget the providers for the moment because firstly when we talk about community we're talking about a really mixed bag of very specific patient needs and very specific service models that are not cookie cutter across the board you know like effectively it's kind of like Haribo star mix of care right you've got all of these kind of different ones and they're all great but one's a cola bottle one's an egg right and you know so firstly I think this is a great opportunity because actually there's lots of complexity there's lots of universality there's lots of information provision that happens within this area and particularly around education training and self-care you know community is the place where so many pathways are kind of really continuing to emerge and as we start to see the you know sort of the 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 reclashing together of sort of primary and community and the dissolution of the barriers as the long-term says, long-term plan says, then actually what we've, you know, what we've got is, you know, lot lots of opportunity in this area and in place. Um, I'd like to just pick up on place actually, because, you know, we talk about place-based care and obviously a community is very much being embedded in place, although I think you speak to most people in community and they would say communities have always been embedded in place. But... Um, When we think about place, I think the mental model that people have is like a home or a community, you know, local shops and village or an independent living village or something like that. But actually, if you get on a bus and say, where is everybody right now? Right. (laughs) Today's the day of rail strikes. So I wouldn't get on a bus today. But if you got on a bus, everybody is on their phone. And actually, for the vast majority of the population, place has become a digital place. And so when we think about place, we should really be including digital within this. But I suppose when thinking about space and time, as we kind of covered before, like there's a great opportunity to really reimagine some of the relational care that we do. You know, we talk about personalization, holistic needs and so on. And Like, I'll give, I'll give some examples. So what, um, I worked with a really inspiring individual in a, well, a neuro, a, a neurodevelopmental service. Um, and one of the physiotherapists, um, had a young person who, um, was being moved care settings, he'd hit, hit 18. And basically there was some concern that the carers weren't able to properly move and handle to be able to deal with his needs. So that individual who was kind of having her light bulb moment, she built something where she created some videos that the individual could have on his iPad and he could show to his carers in order to make sure that those carers could improve his care. That's a superpower in community, you know, for a very complex patient with very complex needs. But actually, you know what about there's loads of stuff around um, early dementia that could be made available to help specific things some really inspiring examples out there that could be there to support people with their own self-care during these stages but as i mentioned also as well what about health visiting services what about community nursing services what about speech and language therapy services you know for all of these there's so much opportunity for us to really start to reconstruct how that care happens so to be honest primary's kind of had its heyday and primary is a bit difficult acute obviously in terms of outpatient it's fine but for me i don't know when i speak to people who really understand community i think there's a general consensus that community is the um it is the the, the great opportunity that we haven't yet really managed to take part you know really managed to open up Text of that
0: I think you're, you're so right that there's all of this, um, untapped potential in the community and there's loads of, um, the more proactively we work, the less our workload becomes in the long run. So I think that's the kind of the thing of the whole health service, isn't it? That if we put in more proactive elements to our, way of working mm. then patients hopefully will need to see us less often and that's the, the great joy of digital when we get it right um mm. but we need to build these digital assets and we need to create these um <clears throat> these opportunities for ourselves and that takes time and it also takes investing in the clinicians who need to do that work i think people don't need to People don't know yet how to do it and that's why there's fear around it and why it takes so long so i think something about empowering our workforce to, to be able to do these things for themselves and to mm. support them so we can we've agreed there's loads of opportunities and i certainly see loads of them in where i work in the community so what do you mm. think we need to do in the clinical workforce to support this kind of change
1: so i think foremost there's a mindset change that needs to happen we're telling ourselves the wrong story and Look, I don't want to suggest some kind of Disneyland where, you know, all of, all of the, all the clinicians drop their caseload and skip into the digital room and just start thinking about that because there's very real time pressures, um, pressures within this. And obviously, you know, within individual services, it's, it's something that people have to do with, within scarce resource and high demand. But um, we had to do this in COVID. And, you know, that we we still have a very different kind of crisis. But actually, it, the, the biggest problem that I see is that we tell ourselves a story in the NHS. And this is a story of control and the story of management. And this is um, actually uh, last year in 2021, uh, management as a science um, by uh, Henry uh, Winslow, um, which basically said, you know, we will take the man's work and the man obviously it was time when it was all the man, um, take the man's work and we'll break this down and he will basically work like a machine. Um, And what we started doing is saying that things where there's wider responsibility, we take up into a management or a PMO role or an IT teams role. Now, The problem is, is that we therefore tell ourselves a story that we give technology work or digital work to the people who understand digital technology. The problem is, and I'm going to come to a theory here, which is called recombinant innovation. And basically, the story of recombinant innovation suggests that every step forward we've taken in humanity is the application of a new kind of technology to a specific context. Right. And so the technology might be fire. Or the wheel, or electricity, or the pulley wheel, or all of these different things. And now we have digital technology, which is our dominating technology. But what recombinant innovation says is that this is the application of the technology and the context. And it cannot succeed without knowledge, real knowledge of the context, and real knowledge of the technology. So instead of taking away innovation and digital work from frontline services, We need to recognize that actually these IT teams, that these PMO teams do not really understand the nuances of the context, which is why we end up with such a high failure rate. So we need to change that. We need to effectively recognize that potentially, it's easier to learn about the technology from a frontline team than it is for um, a team with no clinical training who uh, who learned Prince2 or a, a bit of agile. To learn all of the nuances of a complex, universal, multifaceted community or district nursing service or a health visiting service or whatever. And this is where reductionism, you know, we we keep having problems with this. So what I would say in terms of what we need to do is, yes, we still need IT to play a role in upskilling people, but they shouldn't be controlling it. They should be helping to give people these jetpacks and these tools to have their superpowers so they can have this light bulb moment. Because I go back to this individual in the neurodevelopmental service. At no point in any time would this have been seen as a requirement, it probably wouldn't have been prioritized because it was an individual patient with an individual need. Um, At no point would the questions probably have got that this would have been applied. But when this person, in the service had been given the opportunity to understand a very specific patient need and realise she had the tools to know how to solve it, suddenly her knowledge of the context was so much more important than anything around the technology. So we need to flip this model in its head. I suppose my big thing that I talk about is that we collectively need to swim in meaning. The, the, there is a There is a gap in our organizations and what I mean by this is that we need to make sure that we are weaponizing curiosity by the people who work in the context, you know, the, in, in the front line, in the different services. But I also mean back office services as well. So they can raise problems and opportunities. And then we use that to make sure that we are rich in context and the, the understanding of the why and why that's meaningful. Because if we can do that and we can help each others to do that, then suddenly we are creating the conditions for this recombinant innovation. We are filling ourselves with the context and we are making sure that we're then able to pair and match this with technology. That could be a real revolution for the clinical workforce. But going back to my very first point, we can't do this if we start talking exclusive terms, excluding people from the technology, doing it to them rather than doing it through them. Our whole mentality has to change, you know, or even asking them, to come up with an idea and all of the information about how it's going to work around applying a piece of technology they've never applied before, and then getting them to fill in SOPs, so standard operating procedures or processes, um, data protection impact assessments, um, all of the other different things, when they don't even know how they're going to apply it, or that they might want some degree of flexibility, so we need to, we need to flip our thinking on its head. And that this is much bigger than having catchy terms like digital first.
0: It's really lovely to hear you talk in those terms because I think in our in my organisation I often see that. Um, we try and implement something and it doesn't get um, used in the way that we that we were hoping or whatever, but we've made yeah. it available. And then we find out a, a different service somewhere else has heard about it and started using it in a way that we didn't intend, but actually that's working yeah. really well for them. So I think that kind of, it's sort of a bit grassroots, isn't it? It's like they've kind of figured it out for themselves and made it work in the context that they're working in. And I think the more of that that we can see happening, the better. Um, yeah. But in the NHS, we make it very difficult for ourselves often, don't we, with our governance systems and our, uh, you know, approval processes and, and, um, and complex ways mm. of getting funding so um, I think yeah. trying to uh, perhaps the, the role of digital teams is about tr- making space for clinical teams to be able to do exciting things so trying to take yeah. on some of that burden of of the governance and the, and the paperwork and all of that side yeah. of yeah um, but the more Could we can get people to do it themselves the better and, and figure out their own ways of using things um, yeah the, the better the solutions end up being I think
1: yeah, and start start thinking like you know, start thinking about digital facilitation, right? Start starting to think about like effectively where can where can we put the burden on us to empower rather than control? Where can we put the burden on ourselves to? upskill rather than do you know to 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 try and see if we can support because we've got so much need for digital skills and if we take it away from everybody how are they going to improve their digital skills because most digital skills are social emotional and their experiences right like for me there are three things that we need to be trying to really do and when it comes to change you know when we put people in little blocks in Gantt charts and expect that their human change is going to go in a nice convenient way which is (laughs) crap Um, (laughs) that we we need to be focusing on Um, meaning and value so how are we finding ways that people can see this is valuable when it comes to digital right or necessity and if there's a necessity a new law or rule or we've got to bin fax machines then obviously that's something that we that we have to explain and then we say look yeah we've got to do it it's just something we've got to do then the next one is um participation so actually how can we involve them in it so we can get the rich context so we can help them own it so they can become part of the digital workforce. The final and probably most important one is safety, because many people want to do something but doesn't feel safe. And it feels especially unsafe when their caseload is growing and growing and growing, they don't have any time and so on. And that they may feel that they're going to live with the unintended consequences of trying something. So what are the ways and ways that we explain that we can help make this safe for people? who are likely going to be the recipients and going to live with the consequences of this change. And if we really can think in these three terms, that gives us a really great, a really great simplistic way of saying, all right, well, where's the burden on us? If it's not working, we're not making it meaningful enough or we're not making it safe enough. And that is, to be honest, where the energy should be in the central teams not in going oh well you want to do this thing but it's more efficient if we take it into this little team and then we do it and then we deliver it back to you after we've asked you all your requirements that that model that model's over we're in a, we're in a different world now and that needs to go because everything is very complex and um, so yeah
0: i think i can hear the disruptor in you when you say things like that and it's exciting to hear that those kind of terms being used and the more of us that talk about working in different ways the better because it makes it um people feel more comfortable with doing it differently because it's scary isn't it it's is scary doing that kind of change um and especially for project managers and for other people who work in teams like that who, whose role is um mm. is is to do all of the do it for teams and if we're saying we that's not how we're going to do it anymore i think there's a lot of um, change that needs to happen yeah. in lots of services and
1: then- and the leaders, oh god, you see, you go to you go to the finance director who used to have IT over them because finances and IT are very specific, controllable things. Well, that's not the case anymore. Um, I work with and mentor a lot of finance directors who have kind of got this, and they're just like, um, I'm not really someone who's kind of deals with complexity. I spent my whole career dealing with numbers and figures and budgets. Um, like I can't overestimate how nervous a lot of leaders are who have spent years dealing with safe convenient plans whether they've gone right or not where they want that level of certainty to go upwards and actually i think one of the biggest emotional problems so the, the emotional requirements for teams is not necessarily the individuals are going to be doing that i'm going to be honest from working with frontline services as soon as you help with move some pieces around with digital two plus two equals four suddenly it all makes sense and They've got most of the social emotional skills to do this. They are perfect for this. But if you go to some of the directors that are very used to or you know, senior managers. Emotionally, and I think we need to take, I mean this from a position of empathy, we need to help them to be able to cope with the fact that they've got to sign things off with less certainty. They've got to say, I don't know, or we don't know, and we're going to have to explore it more. And actually, I think sometimes we get very frustrated with the, the leaders who are trying to make all of this complicated. But that's coming from an emotional place right it's because it's scary particularly and someone who's been an exec and a nerd myself the book stops with you what if it's wrong what if we invest in the wrong thing well let's get more information let's get more planning but that if that has an adverse effect then like how terrifying is that i can't ask for more because i'm going to undermine it but if it means that i've got to make decisions or try and help make decisions without without that information and so you know it's I very much empathize with the, the, the leaders and senior managers who are really struggling with this. And I don't think we recognize how hard it is for them. And, you know, I think we treat it as that they're blockers or that they're, you know, like just unnecessarily creating problems. But there's all behind every person who's creating a problem. There is a human being who might be a bit scared or nervous or anxious or has the right idea, you know, and I always get whenever I get in work, there's always some part where something gets personal. And we always need to remember that everybody's human trying their best in this particular circumstance, you know.
0: So I think you're right that we need to be compassionate towards leaders as well who are having to tolerate quite a lot of risks that they didn't used to have to. Um, Similar, you know, it's that compassionate leadership that we hear Becky in the leadership blog talking about a lot, um, thinking about how it makes people feel to manage things that they're not used to. So we have to be, think about how it feels to be a clinical team who are having to take on all this new change and learn all these new skills but equally leaders are having to learn a different way of working as well um, mm. and so just looking after each other as we go through this change is a, and that's why it's people not tech isn't it it's not about the tech so much it's about how we look after the people as we move through these kind of changes change management mm. is change management whether it's digital or not digital isn't it and um, we're all having to manage that, that massive change of how we're all working together so um, mm. yeah it's nice to hear you talking those terms and hopefully Hopefully, um, these kind of discussions are supportive of those leaders who are trying to get, um, get their heads around it all. So we're kind of winding, winding up the conversation a little bit now. And we, but I don't know if you, well, you hopefully do know. I told you very last minute this morning, um, (laughs) that we've got two final questions that we ran the episode off with, which we ask everyone who comes on the podcast. And the first one of those is what digital technology has most impacted your life and why?
1: Yeah, so it's a really hard question to ask someone who is like really sort of obsessed with the phenomena of digital right I so is, unfortunately yeah. <laughs> I, I, unfortunately I can't I can't like you know I think realistically I think you know I can't I can't think outside of my own experience that too much because like realistically it's hard not to say smartphone communications like you know a- across our life in a society where we have all move to different places and live in different places. My family lives in Birmingham, we used to live in London, now we live in Bristol. Um, The fact that, for example, most of my best friends live in a different country, that would have been very strange pre-digital, right? Before we had mobile phones. But now my best mates and I go for a walk and send them a little video of me chatting to them. And we have, to tie this up, asynchronous discussions over over digital or voice, right? We, We break down space and time. And that's really impacted my life because like, you know, my my family get to share in moments about my child. They get to see the photos and so on. So I think through different kinds of medium, my life and pretty much everyone's life has been totally transformed by the role of smartphones in particular and the transformation of communication. So I told you it'd be a geeky response, but like, it's, it's hard for me to say anything else has been more impactful from that because what in our life is 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 bigger than our, relationships and communication ships, communication ships. Why not? Um, Let's <laughs> that go with that. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I love that. I think, um, I think, do you know that we thought of this question and I was imagining people would come up with all sorts of different things, but the more I think about that question, the more I think, how is anybody going to say anything that isn't a smartphone? Because it does so much now that it kind of, you know, yeah. you're carrying around extraordinary power in your pocket that does everything. So I think I might have to think of a different question for the second half of the series <laughs> or something, because yeah, I think there's no getting around a smartphone being Um, extraordinary outside of work in work it does everything that you could ever want really doesn't it and I'm sure it will keep Mm. doing more before we know it will have um, yeah digital twins in our pockets and things I don't know what's coming next for a smartphone Um, so the final question um, is less about digital and more about you so what if a movie was made of your life who would you want to play you and why
1: you say it's less about digital Antonia however come on
0: make it about digital.
1: ever I don't know if you um i love star wars um <laughs> anyone who's seen any videos of me and my slides and stuff will know i love star wars right um and so in the most recent tv programs of star wars they actually brought back a young luke skywalker using artificial intelligence Where they had a young and there's a bit there's, they do behind the scenes stuff on disney where actually what they did is they got um they got um they had the older version of luke skywalker kind of acting and then a younger version now i can't act to save my life but realistically, I would expect that at the point when anybody would be bothered to make a story of my life, which is very unlikely, then hopefully, you know, what they would do is they would take an image version of me and a a digital version of myself would get using AI to play a version of my life. So I don't know who the actor would be behind it, probably like Andy Serkin, who did Gollum very well, you know, precious digital, (laughs) But, but like... But, like, maybe I would hope or expect, and this is going to be, like, don't start me on the transformation of the movie industry. I'm, I'll the hell out of you on that one and digital assets in that era. But I would expect and hope that, given the technologies there, that I could play the story of my life, by, but with someone who is actually a half-decent actor doing, doing the work within it. Like oh
0: my goodness, you flipped it around there, didn't you? I think there's probably there's enough videos there, of you. Know. There'll be loads of videos. I know you've done lots of um, YouTube videos about digital things. So there's lots of content there with, with clips of you in your face. They could mm. Surely they could make that into you saying anything they wanted for the film and then you wouldn't need to have an actor behind it. They'd just have a digital yeah. version of you. How exciting. Voices, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's a brilliant answer. I'm very entertained. So, <laughs> thank you so much. It's been so brilliant having you on the podcast. I love the energy that you bring to all the things around digital and especially your support of community services. I think it's lovely to hear someone in the digital space focusing so much on community services, which, as you said, has, um, has got a, mm. a long way to go, but had a great deal of potential in this space. So it's fantastic. And I've, I suppose I've got to say as well, thank you to our listeners for, for tolerating my huskiness today. Um, but I hope they've enjoyed the content, nevertheless. Um, thank you as also to Chime to our fantastic sponsors. Um, and if people want to find out more information about Liam and where he works and what he does, then um, I'll put some stuff in the show notes so people can find him. Um, and I'll also put a link to the leadership blog episode that he did, which I again would like to highly recommend. Um, and until next time though, Liam and I will say goodbye. So bye from Liam.
1: Uh, goodbye, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Antonia.
0: Thank you so much. And let's goodbye from Thanks for listening to Digitel, where we're navigating the digital healthcare world. Any views, thoughts and opinions expressed by the host or guests belong solely to them and not necessarily to their employer, organisation, committee or other group or individual.